Well, good morning from this position. I already said good morning. Um, but yeah, at this point, our threes and fours are dismissed to their classes. At this point, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. We've got plenty for you in the back. If you slip up your hand, uh, one of our members will be sure to give you a Bible. So if you don't have one, just slip up your hand. We will get you one. We are in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. So as we continue in our journey this morning, in the Gospel of Mark, following Jesus on his way towards the cross, we have, we've seen Jesus suffering. We've seen Jesus suffering at the hands of religious leaders. We've seen Jesus suffering at the hands of his fleeing and denying disciples. We've seen Jesus suffering at the prospect of of drinking God's wrath against sin upon himself. We've seen Jesus suffering on trial before the Sanhedrin. And the last time we saw Jesus, he had been condemned as one deserving death by the Jewish leaders. Mark 14, right before our passage, Mark 14, verses 64 through 65 says this, The religious leader says, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike Jesus, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. It's no longer a prospect of Jesus dying. The hour has come. It is here. The physical suffering of the crucifixion is, has begun. So this morning we see the next scene in Jesus' walk towards the cross. So read or follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 15, 1 through 15. Verse 1 says... And as soon as it was morning, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he, being Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among them, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder... In the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. 
And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said again to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that we are weak and feeble, and we need you to speak this morning. We need you and your spirit to illuminate the truths of your word and then apply them to our cold hearts by nature. So, so we ask, Lord, we ask in a prayer of dependence for you to speak through your word. Your servants are listening. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Sanctify us by your word, Lord. Your word is truth. And, and if there's anything that I don't need to say in this moment that I have prepared to say, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to only speak the truth and it is in your, song, in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So songs and hymns, songs and hymns that we sing on a Sunday morning are remarkable. I just say that because it's part of my job to think that way. But songs, just think about what songs and hymns an effective way of capturing deep theological truth, deep biblical truth, and then combining that with effective emotional music. And that way, we, we not only say what we say the truth, but we feel the truth deep in our soul, don't we? I mean, we just felt the truth as we sang, all I have is Christ. In my place condemned, he stood. There's so many rich songs that we sing week in and week out that I love singing with you guys. But one of the songs that we have not sung yet emphasis on yet, precursor for what's about to come, is a hymn written in 1875 by a, na- by a man named Philip Bliss. Philip Bliss, in 1875, penned a hymn called Hallelujah, What a Savior, or Man of Sorrows, What a Name. And I'm just going to read for you the, f- the, five ly- the five verses of this, song, of this hymn, and the lyrics are on the screen. It says, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless We, spotless lamb of God, was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted, 
high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And what a Savior we have indeed. This morning in our text, we will see what caused Philip Bliss to pen these lines. We will see clearly how Jesus stood in our place, in my place. So let's, let's journey together through this sacred and awful scene. And as we journey, just as a, like a way of putting it before you, we're going to look at Jesus before four groups of people, or four people, Jesus before four people, and then on the back end of that, we will see three truths this morning. So Jesus before four groups of people, and then three truths coming off of that. So first, Jesus before the chief priests. Jesus before the chief priests. Verse number one says this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests, as soon as they could, the chief priests don't wait until, they don't wait until midday, they don't wait until mid-morning, they they hold a meeting, they hold a consultation as soon as they can. Probably didn't get any sleep because they didn't want the word. I mean, lots of reasons why, but they did not want the word to get out of what had happened overnight, that they had taken Jesus into their custody. They didn't want to wait for Jesus' followers to start get bold. They wanted to nip this and get this done as soon as possible. So first thing in the morning, very first thing, they hold a consultation to try to figure out what the plan is. Okay, we've, we've got this Jesus guy in our custody. What do we do? What's the plan? Because here's the thing. Their previous accusals of Jesus will not work in a Roman courtroom. Remember, they're under Roman rule. They've condemned Jesus to death. But even if they wanted to kill Jesus... By crucifixion, according to the law, they had to go through the proper government system. And their opinion of religion held really no value in the Roman court. They could say, well, here's this Jesus who, who said he was going to tear down our temple and build it back up. He deserves to be crucified. And the Roman rulers would say, we don't really care about your temple. We would rather it be destroyed, actually. So if they wanted the Roman government to crucify Jesus, they had to get the Roman government on their side. So they meet early in the morning, it says, and they get a plan. They, it says in verse 1, they bind Jesus up and they deliver him over to a representative of the Roman government, a man named Pilate. Uh, who was the governor of Rome. So first we saw Jesus before the chief priest. Next we see Jesus before Pilate. So Jesus before Pilate is the next scene we or the next the next thing we see in this scene. So the Romans, like we said in particular, could could not care less about this about the temple being destroyed, about Jesus claiming to be a Messiah. That was of little to no value of them, to them. So the chief priests have to do what? They have to alter their charges. They have to change up what they're going to accuse Jesus of. So they have to change their accusations from one, that of a religious matter 
to that of a political matter. And they got to do so quick. And they do. And verse 2, we, we learn of what it is. Pilate asked the question, are you, asked the question to Jesus, coming off the accusations, are you the king of the Jews? What's the accusation? They said, you're a king? Are you the king of the Jews? They've, they've changed it. They, 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 they claim that to be a king, that which would rival Caesar, right? That which would rival the Roman rule and government. So, in effect, they're accusing him of treason. Saying, here's a guy who, who, who is claiming to be king, and he wants to take your rule, uh, Pilate and Caesar. He wants to take you guys. And Luke's account of this fills us in with a little bit more clarity. Luke 23, 2 says this, And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So that's it. That's the false accusation. Treason. And anyone who is found guilty of treason in the Roman court of law would be sentenced to death by crucifixion. That was the letter of the law. Treason equaled death by crucifixion. That explains Pilate's question in verse 2, doesn't it? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you are the king? But that also kind of explain. I mean, it definitely explains Jesus's answer in verse two. What does Jesus say? And he answered him, "I have said so." And I, in my study, I looked at different ways commenters, kind of commentators, just kind of teased out this answer and and what what they said. And a lot of them said it sounded something more like this: "It would do well for you to say that." It would do well for you to ask that question, Pilate. So in my head, here's how I see this. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded back, you would do well, Pilate, to confess me as king, but not the king that you think I am. Not the king who's thirsty after your throne. Not the king who, who really cares a rip about political power. I am the king of kings, the king whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, the king who came not to what? Be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. Oh, oh, Pilate, Jesus is the king, but not the kind of king that you think I am. And Jesus in John's account of this scene says this, John 18, 36, Jesus answered Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate, from our reading through this text, he seems to get this. He seems to understand that Jesus is innocent. And they accuse him, verse 3 says, of many more things. They accuse him of many things the chief priests do. And in response to those claims, verses 4 through 5 inform us that Jesus does what? He stays silent through all of it. All of the slandering, all of the false information, all of the lies. Jesus opens not his mouth. 
And look at the effect. Look at the effect that Jesus' silence has on Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? You would do well to say so. Silence. Verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer to all their accusations so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus, in his humility, Jesus, in his innocence, opens not a word to defend himself, although he could have defended himself, and Pilate had never seen anything like it. He's amazed. Here's a man who'd been slandered, falsely accused, testified against, and anyone in this situation would have pleaded this case, would have cried out for mercy, but not Jesus in this moment. He, He silently, perfectly submits to the Father's plan. Jesus becomes, or he is obedient to the point of death, even death in this way. And Pilate was amazed. And I just want to make the point, sub-point, not even a sub-point, just a thought. Jesus amazes wherever he goes, doesn't he? Whether it be, I mean, in the text we see crowds amazed at his teaching. We've never seen a teacher like this. Whether it be his miracles amazing the crowds, whether it be the authority with which Jesus teaches amazes the crowd, and he has amazed all of us, hasn't he? So here, Peter, Pilate, not Peter, Pilate is amazed at his silence. And apparently Pilate gets it. And this whole scene, although it's early in the morning, like we said, but this whole scene has started to derive quite the crowd. We, we see that in, um, we, we see that starting in verse 6 through the rest. We see that that a crowd started to surround them because of the commotion made. So this is the third group of people. So we saw Jesus before the chief priests. We saw Jesus before Pilate. And then third, we see Jesus before the crowds. Jesus before the crowds, starting in verse 6. Really, 6 through 15. In verse 6, we see that it was custom for the governor at the time to release... uh, I mean, the situation, it says the feast. Remember, it was the Passover festival was happening. So apparently, it was customary at this time, in this way, for the governor in this situation to release a prisoner, to let one prisoner go free, to pardon a prisoner. And then in verse 8, look at verse 8 with me, we see the crowd coming up to Pilate and say, can you do this? We want this to be done. Can you release for us one of the prisoners? And there's only two prisoners Eligible to be released. You got Jesus, the innocent king of the Jews. And then look at verse 7. Who is the other prisoner mentioned? A man named Barabbas. You got Jesus and Barabbas. And according to verse 7, look with me at verse 7. He was guilty of what? Of participating in a a well-known insurrection or a violent uprising against the government. So violent, it says that he was guilty of murder. Look at verses 9 through 10 with me. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 10, For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. So, so get this scene with me. Think about the scene that's happening here. Pilate, pretty politically savvy in this moment. 
saying, oh man, like, if, if the chief priests are kind of on an island, envious of Jesus, jealous of his teaching, then I'll propose Jesus, I'll get the crowd on my side. I, I'm a, it's a win-win situation for me. There's no way the crowd won't choose Jesus. He's clearly innocent. Here's the two options. I mean, really, if we boil it down, the two options eligible for release. Innocent, free Jesus, or murdering terrorist Barabbas. That's the two options. Verse 11. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Although guilty of actual treason, although guilty of actual murder, the crowd, through the persuasion of the chief priest, says, we want Barabbas. And Pilate, of course, is perplexed, confused by this. Verse 12, he says, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do? What shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? This is now the second time that Pilate has lobbied on behalf of Jesus. Remember in verse 9, he says, do you want me to release for you, Jesus? Verse 12, he says, what shall I do with this innocent man, Jesus? And then the crowds answer him in verse 13. Verse 13. And the crowds, they cried out again, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us anybody but Jesus. Kill Jesus. Nail Jesus to a tree. Break his legs. Crucify him. Theologian and commentator Andreas Kostenberger calls this two-word sentence. It says He says it contains the two most chilling words in the Gospels. Crucify him. The crowds cry out. The crowds cry out and order the Roman government to crucify a fellow Jew. Like this is shocking. This is vile. This is inexpressibly evil. And now Pilate lobbies for Jesus and questions the crowd a third time in verse 14. He says, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, crucify him. All the more shocking and vile and evil, crucify Jesus. Verse 15, so Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Barabbas, although guilty of murder, although guilty of treason, walks away free. And before we see Pilate painted in an overly positive light, did you catch the reason why he released Barabbas for them? Verse 15, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowds, The motivation for Pilate to see justice served is is evidently overshadowed and overpowered by a desire to be liked by the crowd. There's such a contrast here 
between Jesus and Pilate, isn't there? We see Jesus not caring about his reputation in front of the crowd. Indeed, it is true what the Pharisees declare of Jesus in Mark 12, 14. They say, and they came to them and said to him, teacher, we know that you're true and you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. That's what we see Jesus doing here in Mark 15. He's not swayed by the crowds. He does not succumb to the crowds. But that's not what we see Pilate doing. He is swayed by the crowd. He, is, he succumbs to the crowd, even though he, from what we see, is pretty convinced of Jesus' own innocence. Commoner James Edwards says this, Pilate seems to have concluded that Jesus might still have some political value. His wanting to satisfy the crowd indicates his underlying principle. That is, his willingness to sacrifice an innocent prisoner for political expediency and security. Whatever Pilate's strategy, the Roman government becomes the Roman governor becomes implicated in Jesus' death. The Roman prefect bears responsibility for executing his death. Driven by practicality, driven by pragmatism. But it was all in God's plan, wasn't it? It was God who handed over Jesus to be crucified. He's not surprised. The plan is going forward. And lastly, we see Jesus before one more group of people. Number four, we see Jesus before starting to see it. We'll see it a lot next week, but we see Jesus before Roman soldiers in verse 15b, really. The second half of 15b says, verse 15 says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus has now been sentenced to death by crucifixion for his false claims of being a political traitor. Now he's in the hands of the Romans. And he's, the text says that he is scourged in the process. And, and praise the Lord, we're probably not familiar with scourging in our culture. It doesn't take place, so it might be lost on us what happens to Jesus in this moment. But commoner James Edwards, again, uh, he gives us a very detailed description of scourging. I'm going to read this. Full disclosure, it is a little graphic, but this is what happened. He says, flogging or scourging was a cruel and merciless preparation for crucifixion. The New Testament shows no inclination to sensationalize the passion of Jesus by recounting its horrors. Its restraint and discretion, however, may leave modern readers like us ignorant of the savagery that preceded and attended a Roman crucifixion. As a prelude to crucifixion, the prisoner was stripped and bound to a post and beaten with a leather whip woven with bits of bone or metal. No number, no maximum, no maximum number of strokes was prescribed. This was not 40 lashes. This was however much they wanted. The scourging lacerated and stripped flesh, often exposing bones and entrails. 
One of its purposes was to shorten the duration of crucifixion. But scourging was so brutal that some prisoners died before ever reaching the cross. Women and children were exempted from, from suffering or even attending a scourging for how brutal it was. And it was this terrifying reality. It was this terrifying flagellation, scourging, to which Jesus was delivered in verse 15. And that's just a prelude. That's, that's the introduction to the crucifixion. We'll see Jesus continue to endure next week. He's crowned with a mocking crown of thorns. He's robed with a mocking king's robe. He's struck with a reed. He's whipped. He's spit upon. And he's led out to the hill to be crucified. All this at the hands of the Romans delivered by Pilate at the request of the Jewish crowds that have been influenced by the chief priests. And Jesus is innocent. He's innocent. He's the only one here who does not deserve to be there. The chief priests are guilty. Pilate is guilty. No matter how he wants to wash his hands clean, he is guilty. The crowd that clamors for Jesus to be crucified is guilty. The Romans who beat him to a pulp and strip his flesh are guilty. And Jesus is not guilty. And in all of this, Jesus is silent. Not a word of protest. And again, the words of Isaiah 53 jump off the page to us. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And this is where our text leaves us this morning. And the question ringing through, if you don't know... I mean, if you're just looking at this scene, the question, very simple question, run through my brain, why? Why? Why would the innocent, sinless Jesus have to go through this? Why, God? Why this way? Why, did, why the suffering without even saying a word? Well, I want to look at three truths from this passage that we see. There's many more. We could sit here for a while and look at it, but, but we'll just look at three. The first truth we see in this passage is, number one, we are guilty of sin that must be atoned for. We, as in we, when I say we, I mean all of humanity. Humans are guilty of sin that must be Atoned for. Although we are not physically there, we weren't physically there at the crucifixion, our sins are the reason why Jesus was on this mission. His sole purpose, he told us three times, he told his disciples 
three separate times in the Gospel of Mark. He says, I'm here to die. (laughs) I'm here to give my life for you. This is why I came, Jesus says. In the text in Mark, we see all these guilty parties, don't we? Guilty, guilty, guilty. Although Pilate tried to, I mean, yeah, we see all these guilty parties and we look at ourselves and we know that we're sinners too. We weren't physically there, but me and you in this room, we have sinned and, and, and rebelled against God's glory. The cruel nature in which Jesus was treated in this moment is a picture of how vile sin is and how evil the human heart really is. And that's the heart that we have. For all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Titus 3 says, We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. We were children of wrath. All of us guilty of sin. And listen to John Stott in his book, Cross of Christ. I quoted this a few weeks ago, but it's very pertinent to this situation. He says in his book, The Cross of Christ, we may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands. Because we sent Jesus there. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see the cross as something done by us. It was our sins that had to be atoned for. It was my sin. It was my sin that drove Jesus to this place. So we must... And it was our sin that caused such suffering and and mocking and scourging and abuse and we must acknowledge our part no matter how small or fickle we seem it may be it is rebellion against god himself romans 3:20 says for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin jesus did this because we are guilty of sin And it must be atoned for. And I have got great news for you in this room. And this passage has great news. It has been atoned for. It's been paid for. Truth number two, Jesus stood condemned in our place. Jesus stood condemned in our place. Do you remember? Do you remember the man named Barabbas? Do you remember... Do you remember the, the vile sinner, guilty of murder, named Barabbas? What happens to him? He goes away free. But what's the exchange that happens in order for Barabbas to be able to go away free? Well, all of the blame, all of the condemnation, all of the punishment that was due to fall on Barabbas, fell on who? It fell on Jesus, the innocent one. And is this not a picture of what has happened in all of our lives? For all of us who have trusted in Christ, although we are guilty, although there is blood on our hands, Jesus 
stood condemned in our place. He took all of the judgment of sin. He took all of the wrath that we deserve and he drank it upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be, or he made him who, sorry, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Isaiah 53.5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. And the hymn, the song that we quoted earlier by Philip Bliss, comes in the laser focus now when we read the second and third stanza of his hymn when he wrote, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Oh, it can. Because we have a Savior in Jesus. Jesus, the guilty one, took your place, and that is the only way it could have happened. There's nothing in you, there's nothing in me that can feel the wrath of God against sin and then take it off of ourselves and transfer it to someone else. We don't have that ability. It has to be atoned for. Someone had to take it who could take it, and Jesus took it. He took all of it. So if you have never, if you're in this room and if you never trusted in Christ, if you're here and you would not call yourself a Christian, and if you've never said, I believe in Jesus, well, the invitation is clearly here for you this morning. Here's the invitation. Repent of your sins. Repent of trying to do it your own way and trust that Jesus has done it all for you. He took the punishment that you deserve on the tree so you can go free. And all you have to do to have life everlasting and all you have to do to have your status change from guilty to free to free from sin's penalty is to trust that Jesus paid for all of it. It's an unfair exchange, but that's the grace and mercy of the gospel. He paid for every sin, every past sin, every current sin, every ongoing sin, every future sin, every sin that we thought about doing and decided against. He paid for all of it. And that's really good. But what have we seen in Galatians? That would be good enough. But not only has he freed us from sin, but he has adopted us as sons and daughters. We have access to God the Father. And that would be good enough, wouldn't it? But there's more. He has made us heirs of the kingdom of God. All that the Father has is ours in Christ Jesus. So turn to Jesus and place your faith in the God-man who stood condemned in your place.
Lastly, truth number three, Jesus kept silent then so that he can be our spokesperson now. Jesus kept silent then so that he can be our spokesperson now. Throughout the narrative of Mark, we've already said it, but Jesus' silence before his oppressors has been shockingly clear. No protest, no taking out for himself. But he had a silent resolve to die for sinners like you and me. He, he opens not his mouth to the gruesome end. His silence shows that he is obedient to God's plan. But it also shows that his death is at the hands of sinners that did it to him. So listen, his silence should leave us the same way that it left Pilate. How did it leave Pilate in verse 5? It says, Pilate was amazed at Jesus' silence. So his silence this morning, his obedience to the plan should leave us amazed. And it should leave us feeling incredibly loved. Incredibly loved by Jesus. C.J. Mahaney, who is a pastor, he says this, In Gethsemane, we were amazed at the silence of God the Father in his response to the prayer of Jesus. And in Gethsemane, we were surprised to discover the love of God the Father that was revealed in his silence. In Gethsemane, we learned that God so loved the world that when Jesus cried out for an alternative to the cross, God the Father was silent. No alternative to the cross. And now, in chapter 15, we are amazed by silence again. This time, we are amazed by the silence of Jesus when he is falsely accused and facing death by crucifixion without an appeal process. And once again, we discover the love of Jesus for sinners like you and me. Jesus so loved sinners like me and you, he didn't say a word, not a word. When he was spit upon and scourged and mocked, and led like a sheep to be slaughtered. The innocent one slaughtered for the guilty. But listen, he was silent then, but he will never be silenced again. Jesus stood silently. Listen, Jesus stood silently in the courtroom of Pilate then, so that Right now, at this moment, he can stand at the right hand of God's courtroom and declare us not guilty. He's our spokesperson, and he does it forever. And, and, and right now, he is at the right hand of God the Father, not silent, but he's pleading on your behalf. Romans eight thirty three to 34 says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. But more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God the Father, who is interceding for us right now. His silence then leads to our salvation and sanctification and glorification now and forever. So how appropriate is it for us to respond in two ways this morning. First, if you didn't see it in the foyer, we're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper together. So what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a meal of remembrance. 
When we take the cup, we drink the cup symbolizing Christ's blood. And we eat of the bread. We eat, and it symbolizes Christ's body, scourged and broken for you. And just a word of reminder for everyone in the room, this is a family meal. And so if you, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you are a brother, a sister in Christ, and if you're a member of a local church, a member in good standing of a local church, then you are free to eat. You're free to drink and remember and worship. But if you are not, if, you have, if you're not a Christian, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, we would ask that you refrain, that you, that you sit and observe. This meal is not for you. But we ask that when you observe, you reflect on what Jesus did for you. This word is true. He spilled his blood for you. And after we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to break the silence. We're left here with Jesus's Silence. We have been silent, but we're going to break our silence. We're going to break Jesus' silence with loud singing. And I trust that we all will because we do it every week when we respond loudly with our response to who God is. Our response of, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Can. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When He comes, and oh, He's coming. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing now and forever. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Hallelujah. We have a Savior in Christ. So we thank You for the blood. We thank you for the suffering. We thank you for the gift that is your son pierced for our transgressions. Whose wounds, his stripes have healed us. So help us now in this moment, Lord, to respond faithfully to respond with joy for what you have done in our place, taking all the sin upon yourself so that we can go free. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.